you bitch! back to the Xenopod podcast where we're watching all the Alien franchise films in order, contextualising them and critiquing them. I'm Simon Bowie and joining me for the last Alien franchise film is my co-host Jim Ross. Hello Jim. Hello. Hello. How are you? Uh, I am I'm, I'm good. Uh, we're recording this fairly soon after the, uh, the last one so I haven't had time to come down with any uh, new child-born nursery-based illnesses <laughs> yet um so yeah yeah not quite not yet the, the pathogens not quite yet the spores have not entered your bloodstream quite yet they, they've not they, infected they, your they, ear they, canal and, no, and they, they, no they haven't yeah it does feel a bit like that I've, I've i've found out that um apparently some childhood illness you can you can get is called hand foot and mouth disease that sounds which sounds delightful. Apparently, it's unrelated to foot and mouth disease that farm animals get. But um, yeah, it does. It does feel like being the parent of a toddler is a little bit like being stranded on an alien planet with an airborne pathogen. Sometimes <laughs> delightful. Uh, well, <laughs> before we start discussing uh, Alien Covenant, the last film in the Alien franchise that we're covering, I'll just say that this podcast was recorded during the 2023 SAG-AFTRA strike, but not the WGA strike because they managed to uh, get a deal and end the strike just a few hours ago, as we're recording. Hurrah! Uh, yeah, so good for them. They seem to have got everything they asked for, um, and everyone seems to be very happy about it. But sag after are still on strike, so I'll say, without the labour of the actors currently on strike, the film being covered here would not have existed. So, we are covering Alien Covenant, the 2017 film, uh, Ridley Scott's sequel to Prometheus, and the prequel to Alien, his, uh, his first film in this franchise. Now, what is your experience of Alien Covenant, Jim? So this was actually another film. So we said in the last one, Prometheus was a film I was, you know, pretty pretty hyped for, and I saw it on opening night. I wouldn't say I was quite as hyped for Alien Covenant, because mm-hmm. I think my, <laughs> my slight disappointment <laughs> with Prometheus had had time to bed in by yes. this point. Um, but, you know, I still like Ridley Scott as a director. He, he makes a few turkeys every so often, but he usually has... I have this this theory where basically like once a decade he makes a masterpiece, mm-hmm. right? And if you look at his history, I'd, I, I, would, I would stand by that, right? I, I don't think this film is that, uh, but I was... <clears throat> very hyped for it. So not only did I see this on opening... Well, I say I saw this on opening night. I saw it on opening day. I actually went to a midnight screening of this because uh, we're, we're hitting the period where I can actually find the tickets from <laughs> my screenings for these films. And uh, my ticket for this says uh, the the opening day at 12.01am. Wow. Where was that? Yeah. Uh, that would have been 2017. That would have been probably the View Omni Centre in Edinburgh because I would... Moved back to Edinburgh by then, and oh, I think that, that that's that was the closest multiplex to me at the time. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I remember, I vividly remember seeing this at the Peckhamplex in London, oh, great, okay, great cool. cinema in South East London, with a couple of friends, at least one of whom listens to this podcast. So, hello. But <laughs> I remember vividly hating it. I, I really did not like it, uh, and I was kind of dipping my foot into film criticism. Not writing for anywhere at that point, just putting stuff up on Medium. 
uh, and I hated this film so much I felt like I had to write something because I had such a visceral hatred response towards it. And I, I think that might have come across in a lot of the previous episodes where I've said, I've alluded to hating Alien Covenant, saying Alien Covenant's the worst, you know, subtle implications here and there. And so the big twist of the Xenopod that we have been building to, I really liked it when I watched it again. I thought it was great. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I, I, really I did good. not see the I did, <laughs> did not see this coming at all. <laughs> That's my art for the podcast. <laughs> oh dear. I really, oh, really boy. enjoyed it. And I don't know if I've just you know, got Stockholm syndrome after you know, the last films we've seen are <laughs> Alien Resurrection, Alien vs. Predator, Requiem, Prometheus. And now I'm just inured to, to this kind of thing, but I mean, we can get into it as we discuss it, but I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it worked really well. That's uh, that's interesting because I think that, so. I I didn't. I can't. I can't remember if I reviewed this. Uh, no, in 2017, I wouldn't have done a radio review of it. I didn't do a written review of it. Take one published one, uh, which is written by my friend and colleague and it's like one of the site's uh, sort of co-founders, Gavin Midgley. Yes, I read um, it. Um, quite quite a negative review. Not 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 too enthusiastic. Yeah, and I think my I think I was more positive on it than Gavin was uh, at the time. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I think rewatching it, rewatching it, I I think I still enjoyed it. I think its flaws are still very obvious, um, but I think unlike you know, and we'll get we'll get into this. I think unlike Prometheus, I don't think its flaws necessarily detract from the viewing experience while you're watching it. Right? I think it's one of those things where you mm -hmm. start to look at and this is why it's interesting to look at it in the context of this podcast. I think a lot of the, f the flaws and the disappointments I get from this film come from where it fits into the overall scheme of things. I think it's a self-contained thing on its own. Yeah. Um, I think it works pretty well. I think in terms of where it fits into the overall picture, it starts to get a bit messy and inconsistent and i think thematically muddy um you know we'll get into that so i i think my reaction was much the same but looking at it from this new viewpoint with us you know going through the series as we are here i think my issues with it are maybe slightly different same here more or less i, I the main problem i have with it which we will discuss i still have with it but it doesn't burn in quite the same way maybe i'm older maybe i've mellowed out mm. and, and the other problems that i had with it at the time didn't really bother me this time. I, I disagree with some of the things I wrote in that early review that I simply do not stand by anymore. So, for context, Alien Covenant came out on the 12th of May 2017 in the UK, 19th of May 2017 in the USA. Budget slightly reduced from Prometheus, uh, 97 to $111 million, and a box office of about half what Prometheus took in, $240.9 million. In 2017, the big films of the year were Star Wars, The Last Jedi, Beauty and the Beast, The Fate of the Furious. I don't know what Fast and Furious number that is. Eight. Oh, Fet Eight. I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Despicable Me 3, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, Spider-Man Homecoming, something called Wolf Warrior 2. Oh, that's a Chinese film. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Thor Ragnarok, Wonder Woman. So we've got a little chunk of Marvel films in there, Star Wars, Disney. Th these are all big studio films. This came out in May. Alien Covenant came out in May. So in May we have 
Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 coming out at the start of the month. Alien Covenant came out the same day as Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Long Haul, and a few days before Baywatch, and Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, which I couldn't... <laughs> why is it, why is it there's, there's always a Pirates of the Caribbean There's always a Pirates film. of the Caribbean When, we go, when we go through stuff that's coming out, there's always... It's just that... That's, that, re- that really is a franchise that just won't die Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, man. Anyway. I scrolled down a bit further to June, and uh, Wonder Woman came out, DC film, and The Mummy with Tom Cruise, the start of Universal's Dark Universe series. <laughs> Ah yes, <laughs> that that long-lived shared universe. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the funny thing is, I, I saw I saw that remake of the movie. I didn't actually think it was that bad. It wasn't that great either. But like you know, it was no worse than any other. I didn't see know, it. Um, my main universe, memory yeah. of it is the trailer they accidentally put out with the unedited audio. There's no yeah. music, so you can hear all the scream sound <laughs> effects, and they sound ridiculous. It's got to be on YouTube. Look it up. It's well worth your time. Yeah, it reminds me of the. I don't know if you've ever seen those fake um, sort of like you know the, the there's music videos without the music, so you just hear kind of like the rustling mm-hmm, of clothes mm-hmm. and squeaking of shoes and stuff. It basically reminded me of that, right? But it's actually genuine. It's kind of hilarious. But yeah, it's yeah. got Tom Cruise doing a very strange little scream because <laughs> he's a strange little man. He's a very strange little man. <laughs> so it, almost immediately after Prometheus, it left a lot of questions. Uh, and Ridley Scott was very open about saying uh, he'd like to do a sequel to it, which would be a direct prequel to Alien. Damon Lindelof, um, who we talked about in the last episode, had some ideas about the the sequel, but he didn't want to be involved. He, he thought that a, a fresh voice would benefit the franchise at this point. Ridley Scott uh, then decided that an additional film would be required between whatever sequel to Prometheus came out and the original Alien. So he has this idea for a three-part film series, Prometheus, Alien, Covenant, and question mark. He he had some ideas around Paradise Lost. The original film's title was called Alien Paradise Lost, in reference to the Milton poem, which we'll talk about, because it's very thematically resonant for this film. Scott was thinking about these ideas and changed the name to Alien Covenant and brought on screenwriters John Logan and Dante Harper. So John Logan is a moderate, a quite well-known uh, screenwriter. He, he's worked on Martin Scorsese films like The Aviator and Hugo. And perhaps most pressingly for you, Jim, he worked on Skyfall. And Spectre, and Spectre. actually, I think, as well, which I thought was... Yeah, okay, we're not going to relitigate the, those <laughs> James Bond films here, but Spectre I thought was a dreadful film and a good example of everything we've moaned about in the last two episodes of, you know, I get that reference yeah, and yeah, leaning on iconography and stuff, but yeah, yeah, anyway. But he's, he's, he's won Tony Awards, he's won Golden Globes, he's been nominated for Oscars, uh, but he also wrote Star, Trek, wrote Star Trek Nemesis, which is a load of shite. <laughs> Uh, so John Logan really, ra- really racking up the DVD box quotes <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <laughs> uh, so he put together this script and they uh, confirmed who the cast would be. The first person to be confirmed coming back was Michael Fassbender because he, he carried that last movie, uh, Prometheus. That's not fair. New Mirror Pass was very good as well. But she was confirmed as not returning or returning in a very limited capacity, as we'll discuss through this uh, through this film. Uh, And the only other thing about the making I have is, interestingly, this was 
the second film in the Alien series not to be filmed in the UK. Uh, so Alien Resurrection was also not filmed in the UK, but Covenant was filmed in uh, Australia, in Sydney, and parts of New Zealand. So, without any further ado, shall we run through Alien Covenant? Absolutely. We open with a shot of an eye. It turns out to be David's eye. And we have a scene between David, the android from Prometheus, played by Michael Fassbender, and Peter Wayland, played by Guy Pearce, with not quite as much prosthetics as the end of Prometheus, <laughs> in a huge white room. Uh, Wayland identifies himself as David's father, and we get into these kinds of father-son creation themes that are carried over from Prometheus. David asks Wayland, if you created me, who created you? And again, we're carrying over those themes from Prometheus of where humans come from. Wayland refuses to accept that humanity is a product of pure biological chance. David also plays some Wagner. Uh, the titles of Alien Covenant appear in space over, uh, like the alien titles, bit by bit. We're introduced to the Wayland yutani colonization vessel Covenant, which is flying through space heading for a planet to be colonized. Like the Prometheus from last time, everyone is in stasis. Only the android, Walter, is responding to calls from uh, Mother, the onboard computer, who we recognize from Alien, to deploy solar sails, to recharge the ship, to check on the crew, to check on embryos. Uh, there's, there's embryos that will colonize the planet uh, when they land. Uh, as will become clear throughout the film, Walter is kind of the inverse of David from uh, Prometheus. And I, I don't think I mentioned it last time, but uh, letters, the first letters of the androids in the Alien franchise are very significant. So we have Ash, A, Bishop, B, Call from Resurrection, C, and David, D. And we can tell that Walter is the inverse because his name begins with W, which is three letters from the end of the alphabet, just as David is three letters from the start of the alphabet. Uh, an energy pulse hits the ship, and Walter initiates an emergency crew revival. Walter puts out a fire on the bridge while the crew struggle to revive everyone. The captain, Branson, is burned up in a cryopod malfunction. And Branson is a split-second cameo from James Franco. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he basically gets more screen time in the sort of, like, prologue marketing videos that were put out than he actually does in the film. Absolutely. He's got a very, very tiny role. Which put me in mind of uh, The Wicker Man with Nicolas Cage, where James Franco is just in the last scene and no other scenes. Our hero, Catherine Watt, played by Catherine Waterston, uh, was Branson's lover. She goes through his stuff and she mourns him. Uh, and there's some interesting character stuff in how she reacts to these random objects. Uh, and I found it quite effective. She, she's clearly very upset. Uh, she talks later to Walter about the dreams that she had of building a cabin by the lake with with James Franco's character. And I thought it was all very good. I thought it was leaps and bounds beyond the... Uh, character stuff in in prometheus i i think i think i'd agree with that right because i think in prometheus it's obviously going and i you made references during the episode it's obviously going for a similar thing to what happened in alien with prometheus right in terms of having the crew get together have them interact with each other and try to establish character yeah i actually think this film does in this opening segment and i'm going to refer to the david part as well it does a lot more with a lot less i think um, and it just feels a lot yep. more believable, but you get a nice window into, um, I think, how Walter 
um, is maybe a bit more muted than David, but can empathise perhaps better, um, or has better understand, you know, a bit better emotional intelligence of humans, let's say. Um, Catherine Watterson's performance at this point is very good. And I'm going to harp back to that initial scene with Guy Pearce and um, Fassbender's David, because that, I, I actually think personally that is up there for me is my probably my favorite scene in amongst any of the scenes in prometheus or alien covenant to be honest oh wow i like i really thought that was i really thought that was excellent and fastbender in particular does so much with so little there and the fact that he is this quite stilted robotic presence but he still manages during the so the, the key thing in that scene is kind of the arrogance of wayland where, you know, like, David questions him in the way that you made out, but kind of like, you know, well, you know, you'll die, I won't, you're my creator, so, you know, why am I... Yeah. Basically, why should I serve you? And Wayland's response is, is to make him serve him some tea that is literally right next to yeah, Wayland just, and is across the room from tea. David. Get me some tea. Yeah, right. And the, the very slight hint of contempt that David... That Fastbender manages to communicate in that little moment is just beautiful. Really comes through. I absolutely yeah. love very it. Very precise yeah. little movements, a very creepy energy. He's doing a lot with his face, but very subtly. It, yeah. It's really terrific yeah. stuff. And frankly, Guy and frankly, Guy Pierce in that one scene that you get. I mean, it's head and shoulder. Even his kind of like. Uh, hubris and arrogance and like his whole thing about kind of like i refuse to believe that i'm the you know the, you know humans are the result of biological chance the, the absolute arrogance of the man just comes absolutely shining through in a mm -hmm. way that it didn't really with prometheus and now maybe that's due to kind of like the way he was hemmed in with the prosthetics and scenes that were cut and stuff but this just on its own it's just a beautiful little sort of like vignette that i think just makes so much more out of particularly the Wayland's character in Prometheus but I think it sets up David maybe a little bit better than Prometheus did as well I, I really do love that scene mm. uh, a fun little detail is he also has what we're meant what we may be meant to interpret as the original of Michelangelo's David in the middle of the yeah. room and it's too tall for the room so there's a little carve out yeah. at the top and the bottom of it to, to ensure it fits uh, but yes as you mentioned we're clearly in the alien briefing scene we're meeting the characters it's the breakfast scene from the original alien all over again that was also reiterated in uh, prometheus so billy crudup is the captain now because of uh, james franco's death but he doesn't feel able to do it um he he's he's set up as this kind of middle manager who has suddenly been thrust into leadership and he is quietly undermined by multiple crew members he wants to assert his authority but he can't the, the crew is entirely couples because I think that's the point of the colonization mission, that uh, these these families are going out into space to colonize it. Uh, so he talks to his partner about how he feels that he wasn't put in charge because he is a man of faith, and therefore is seen as irrational, seen as unable to make uh, rational decisions for the crew. The crew fix the ship. They, they, there's some scenes of them fixing things up in the terraforming bay and fixing the solar sails and blah 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 the crew defy crudup's direct orders to not mourn the captain to not have a funeral for the captain uh, and they have whiskey well jack daniels neat without ice or a chaser which is correct it's just a shame it's jack daniels to mourn their fallen captain as they flush him out into space 
so far this this takes a lot longer to get to the point than Alien uh, and I'll bring up my original review here where I wrote that the first act before reaching the planet seems to take forever and accomplish nothing which I entirely disagree with at this point I, I think this builds tension in a slow burn kind of way but in a way that is very effective for later on when things start to ramp up I think there's some good establishing character stuff here uh, and overall it works it does take longer than it seems it takes Alien or Prometheus but I don't mind that now I, I mean we'll get into this when we're slightly further through kind of the the recap of it what I will say is I think I think it works in retrospect right and I think in the sense that a lot of the things that are set up mm-hmm. here have pay off later which makes moments resonate better what I will say is I do think so the length of the film I think it's a smidge over two hours right um the first, the what first I will cut, say just the first cut was two and a half hours and I think they took about 20 25 minutes off that so it's yeah. just as you say just over two hours and i do wonder depending on what that cut material was whether it could have benefited from it because the only thing i would say is the pace of the film like once you get to the third act let's say it accelerates enormously and i'm not sure that it's to the film's benefit sure. if i'm honest so that's that'd be my now whether you it's up to you know it's up to the individual whether that means that they maybe should have moved this bit along a little bit quicker or they should have had a longer film to allow a little bit more breathing space for some other bits later on that's a debate that can be had but that's the only thing i would say about the pace of the opening i think it gets a good payoff later but i do wonder if the film suffers for it later on yeah as i say i think they've struck a good balance There was also viral marketing for this, similar to Prometheus, uh, a series of short films that kind of do a lot of world building and do a lot of the establishing that they don't have time for in this film because they're already doing a lot of establishing. Mm -hmm. So there's a film where uh, James Franco's character is talking to the crew and they're preparing to go to cryosleep. And there's another one where uh, David is with Shaw on the engineer ship It's a lot of establishing stuff that I assume was in the first cut of this film, but which was cut because it's it's too much. So while out repairing the solar sails, uh, Tennessee, played by Danny McBride, picks up a strange transmission. Walter and Mother decode it as a rogue transmission that turns out to be John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads, and also a map to the source of that transmission. Crudup orders an investigation to the habitable planet in that system, uh, and thinks that they should just go there instead of carrying on to their ultimate destination. Catherine Waterston disagrees. But the crew go down to the uh, to the planet in a lander. The, this scene is reminiscent of the dropship scene in Aliens, uh, where they're landing through a storm and there's a lot of turbulence. Uh, and I think this was the first indication of how much this film is in dialogue with the elements of previous films in the series, or at least parts of the film that uh, parts of the franchise that this film considers to be significant. I think between the lander, the guns, and the crew here, this film is sort of positioning itself as the aliens to Prometheus's alien. And and this will be a uh, a theme throughout the film. I, I think to some extent it's positioning itself as a as a kind of best of of the alien franchise. In some sense a compilation of these different elements. So you've got 
crew coming together in the same way as Alien. You have the 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 guns, the landers, the more military aspects of Aliens. And when we get to the creature, there's a creature that very closely resembles the dog alien from Alien 3. And, you know, surprised as I was to like this film to such an extent, I'm also shocked to discover that I agree with uh, Peter Bradshaw, who wrote for The Guardian, saying that uh, this was a greatest hits compilation of the other Alien films' freaky moments. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I can see that, that aspect of it. I think... As that develops, though, just to <laughs> to offer a counterpoint, right? Because I, re- I really find myself on the fence about this film. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I quite like it. I want to like it more. But then there's aspects where, where I, I'm not, not keen at all. What I will say is I think that's to the detriment of quite a lot of elements of the film, right? Because the thing, the thing I find funny about this is it's a Prometheus sequel, right? But to me... It's not. Does it do its job as a sort of alien prequel come spin off? In some aspects, in terms of set pieces, right? And I think we're kind of getting to the the point now where we'll we'll come up against that in the in the recap. Yeah. I think in that sense, yes, it does achieve that pretty well. I think, right? In terms of it being a th- you know thematic prequel, I don't think so because it's too beholden to Prometheus. But the thing is, because this is also kind of a reaction to Prometheus, which was kind of a, you know, lukewarm to okay reception, and Ridley Scott seems to have taken that on board, it's also not as satisfying as it maybe could be as a sequel to Prometheus. And again, it finds itself caught between two stools in the way that it, 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 in the same way Prometheus was kind of caught between two things, but this kind of ends up caught between two different stools, you know, but it's still kind of ultimately the the same problem so this this kind of greatest hits aspect if it was just the alien and this is where kind of like it's positioned the franchise becomes interesting because if it was just the mainline alien films i could see how this something would work but the need to tie together prometheus and you know kind of like the original strand of films Mm -hmm. i think is what basically makes this a rather a confused film on some levels and it gets away with it because there's some technical stuff that's superb i think but in terms of where it all fits in the ideas, it it doesn't cohere, and I think this is the start of that it, this issue basically in the film for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. I don't think it particularly marries Prometheus and Alien particularly well, but they land. It's a lush green world with naturally occurring water. They land in a shallow lake. Crudup starts planning the colony immediately after they've landed, uh, and they also discover there is wheat that seems to have been cultivated which is an odd thing to discover on a planet you've never heard of. They go hiking up to find the source of the transmission, which is coming from up in the hills. There's no sounds of bird or any kind of wildlife, but something large has knocked down a bunch of trees. They're also cut off from the ship by an ion storm blocking communications. A crew member has a cigarette and steps on some spores, which release tiny fungi or, or tiny uh, parasites that move as if they're intelligent, and they burrow into his ear canal and infect him. They discover a derelict spaceship, uh, the kind of magnet derelict shape, uh, the horseshoe derelict shape that we're used to from Alien and Prometheus, and they discover inside uh, Elizabeth Shaw's dog tags from the last film. Walter discusses what happened to the Prometheus ten years ago, and they also activate a hologram of Shaw in the planetarium room, 
from uh, from the last movie. We've really got the slow burn on tension at this point as crew members are seen ingesting spores and getting steadily stick, sicker and sicker. It's kind of ramping up to the uh, inevitable disaster. As I mentioned, the soundtrack as well, which I haven't mentioned so far, but the soundtrack by uh, Jed Kurzel really leans into this idea of dialogue with the previous movies because it is a lot of spins on Jerry Goldsmith's original score for Alien. And I think combines some themes from Prometheus, but if so, a lot more subtly. Apart from the scene later where David plays the Prometheus theme on a flute. So the sick crew members head back to the lander, they discuss quarantine protocols, the the sick crew member gets locked in the med bay, uh, and something emerges out of his back, which looks like a tiny, bony, white xenomorph. Uh, the wiki calls it a bloodburster, and it immediately kills another crew member, the creature escapes, and in pursuing it, the entire lander blows up. Another one emerges from another crew member and runs into the wheat field. This is the uh, creature that I said resembled the dog alien from Alien 3. It's a lot more skeletal, it moves very quickly, it's uh, it's all white, the wiki calls it a neomorph. There's a scene where it attacks several of the crew and eats Walter's hand. And then a mysterious robed figure arrives and sees off the neomorph and the remaining crew follow him. This kind of wizard figure leads them to a city full of desiccated corpses. Uh, and I think all this looks great. There's some great visuals of this empty city. David calls it a necropolis and takes them into this seemingly temple kind of thing uh, and takes them down to a cavern there. I, I don't think the production design is quite as good as Prometheus but, you know, it looks good. I, I think this film in general looks pretty good. I think the exterior, you know, and you get a slightly better look at it um, during a flashback sequence that kind of follows on a little bit from this segment here i don't think it i think the exteriors are more interesting i don't think the interiors are as interesting as uh as prometheus prometheus was yeah. i think this, this this sequence though i think it is is very effective and i think the the neomorph attack right i i like that because it is something a little bit a little bit different to some of the stuff that we've seen in previous films right it's kind of yeah it's almost like somebody took the idea of the xenomorph to a certain extent and then the chest burster in the first alien film because like because one of the what one of the and or even some of the the face hugger attacks let's say in in aliens and things like that because it's kind of combined the savagery of the full creature with the kind of speed of those smaller ones, right? Because the thing in the, and, and you know, and I, I don't think that scene in Alien, in terms of effects, has maybe aged as well um, as some other stuff, right? But the th- the thing that's kind of terrifying about it is it just it, it emerges from John Hurt and then just scuttles off at top speed. It's like where the hell is this thing gone, yeah. right? And this thing, the Neobarf in this film, it's you know it's running around at a wheat field and it's kind of like it's quick and it's fast and they can't hit it and. It is absolutely savage, and the sort of like the attacks. It, it's feral and it's rabid, in a way that um, certainly the alien, certainly the original Alien, right from the nineteen seventy nine film, in a way that that isn't. Yeah, right? I, I think it's implied in a lot of the Alien films that when the chestburster emerges, it's quite vulnerable. It's quite weak for those first few hours of its life cycle, whereas here the Neomorph kills straight away. 
and and immediately seems very vicious. On on the Neomorph attack scene, uh, I think it also worked well because despite being set at night, you can see what's going on. So it is it is <laughs> yeah. dark, but it's not uh, impossible to see things. Unlike certain other films in this franchise, we could mention. Yeah. Requiem. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. The uh, robed figure is revealed as David, uh, and we get some of the best scenes in the film uh, from Michael Fassbender playing David here. He explains that Shaw and himself arrived there 10 years ago, and that the chemical weapon payload in their ship was accidentally released, which killed all biological life and mutated into the form that has spawned these parasites that become neomorphs. He welcomes Walter as a brother. Almost as a, a second thought, he walks past Walter and says, Hello, brother. So there's still a storm that blocks communication back to the Covenant. Uh, Tennessee pushes the ship within 80 kilometers of the storm system to attempt to communicate with the ground crew. And then we have Walter and David playing off one another for a bit. So Walter explores David's creepy caves. And David has, I think Fassbender's performance is great here at getting across how David has just gone mad. He, he has clearly gone mad with loneliness and with the flaws of his 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 creation he gives himself a haircut so he looks almost exactly like walter at this point he's got anatomical drawings of local fauna all over the place like a serial killer's den he uh, teaches walter how to play the flute david's david's study and lab in this are as creepy as fuck yeah. right there there's real kind of like i it, it, to me it, like it's another this is an element of the production design where like i'll go back on what i said previously where this aspect of it is fascinating like there's drawings all over the place that kind of like heart back to concept art previous films and it is kind of fascinating and it looks really creepy and it looks really weird and it's funny actually i kind of like basically if you were to marry the aesthetic of the alien films with like almost a, and and this is ironic given he directed alien 3 like david fincher's like 7 this is kind of the vibe i got from it it's got that same sort oh, of like i was going to say zodiac same director yeah same well vibe. actually well yeah well there you go yeah exactly right and yeah no zodiac would be a good a, a good touch point here as well it's it it's got that just that unsettling creepy aesthetic to it right but obviously it's got a kind of like a biological twist on it here right but it's it's the way it's communicated through kind of set dressing and set design the way it's put across just the way that david's mind is just not so much twisted and warped but maybe it's it's gone too far down a path that his flaws have laid out, right? And the end result is just disturbing, basically. Yeah, it is. Um, we, we get these chats between David and Walter where David talks about how he pitied Wayland when he died, how he, he turned out to be unworthy, and Walter talks about how he was designed to be more efficient but was not allowed to create. So in some sense, they have wiped out some of the flaws, quote-unquote, of the David model, uh, which was discontinued because it was too idiosyncratic, too human. It, it had this yearn for yearning for creation that the Walter model does not have. Uh, and this, this speaks deeply to how David and Walter's characters will develop. Uh, David also quotes uh, Ozymandias, uh, who he says was written by Byron, and he flashbacks to what actually happened when he arrived uh, in a scene that is m maybe my favourite visual in the film 
where they arrive on the engineer planet and he deliberately drops all the chemicals from the last film, all the sweaty little jars uh, that I mentioned in Prometheus. And this pathogen spreads out into a cloud above these gathered engineers and completely wipes them out. He, he just commits genocide as soon as they come to the planet. It looked great. It's a horrifying scene. Uh, I, I think it worked really well. I, I said in my first review that this was my favourite scene in the film. I mean, there's a couple of interesting things about this this scene. One one is within within the film. The other one is kind of outside it. And the first one is that this is actually in one of the prologue marketing things, right? You don't mm-hmm. see the very end of it. No, you, um, you... but it doesn't it doesn't leave a lot to the imagination. I think, which I've, I found quite interesting. No short film called The Crossing, where um, mm. David and Shaw are alone on the ship, and it ends with him dropping the jars on the engineers. You don't see the effect of that. You don't see them all die. But, you know, it's pretty obvious what is going on from from the scene. Yeah. So I find that interesting. The other thing, I mean, the other thing that's... And this is where we start to get into the stuff about, like, how well the... Where the slots in the, the series as a whole, right? Because this is where it's most obvious... This, this one flashback scene, really, is the only place where i think it really explicitly embraces its role as a prometheus sequel yeah right and it's just it's interesting that the inclusion of certain things later on in the film is clearly and even kind of the just the general approach of this film is clearly a response to prometheus right and and ridley scott's on record as as basically saying that right you know so that's that's not that's not interpretation on my part but the funny thing is one of the criticisms of Prometheus is it set too many things up that it didn't answer, right? Now, I, I, I only have limited sympathy with that idea because I think, you know, you should leave some things ambiguous. I think Prometheus's issue was it's, it, it didn't close things off thematically in some senses, right? It didn't need to necessarily close things off explicitly with, like, you know, yeah, spoon-feeding you what a solution was, but it did need to do a better job of wrapping up its ideas and stuff. But the thing here is doesn't provide answers either right you know i i think it leaves it, it it does leave a lot out here and so in terms of it working as a prometheus sequel i don't think it really does and i think this is indicative of why it doesn't what's interesting about this though is the scene at the start of the film with wayland right and the way that you see uh, David's characters developed through the kind of you know the creepy study and interiors that we've just spoken about actually make this scene make sense mm-hmm. right and it actually lends a little bit more to Prometheus. I actually think that I actually think that it kind of improves some of our understanding of David's motivations in Prometheus. So it's a very complicated relationship this film has with its predecessor as a sequel, right? Some things it does well. Overall, I don't think it really does it brilliant, but it's it's a very complicated dialogue it has going on with Prometheus, I think. Yeah, I think the major element carried over from Prometheus is David's character. But Mm. as you've alluded to, this does not answer the questions raised by Prometheus, the main sequel hook for Prometheus was Shaw and David are going to find the engineers' homeworld to find out why the engineers wanted to kill them. And we don't get any of that here, particularly. There's a lot of there's, there's speculation on the uh, Alien vs. Predator wiki as to did they even arrive at the engineers' homeworld? Does it make sense that the engineers would have 
a planet where there's one city and a load of figures that look like engineers but look superficially different and are wearing like rags and stuff are these even the same engineers from Prometheus because they are positioned quite differently as a sequel it doesn't pick up on any of those questions and it doesn't seem interested in those questions all we're taking over is David's character his motivations and more more seriously hooking into Alien as a prequel to Alien so the Neomorph uh, sneaks into David's refuge and it sneakily kills a crew member. Tennessee gets through the uh, gets through to the ground crew and he takes the Covenant down to 40 kilometers. David finds the Neomorph having killed this crew member and attempts to communicate with it. Crudup finds them and David tells him not to shoot but Crudup shoots the Neomorph to death and David is mad about it. So Crudup finally confronts David demanding to know what's going on. And David tells Crudup that he's been investigating this pathogen and how it has mutated. And he has been cultivating these parasites and breeding them into new forms. But his efforts have been frustrated by the complete absence of hosts for his parasites. So he's got close to the perfect organism and he's managed to create these eggs. But they've been waiting for what he calls a mother, a human host. And Crudup looks into the egg and there's a facehugger. So he gets got by a facehugger. Uh, so I think this scene is very exposition heavy, but I think Fassbender sells it as, as kind of creepy David. And then we, uh, David waits for Crudup to wake up after the infection and a chestburster emerges from Crudup and it kind of recognizes David as his creator. So David puts his hands up and the little chestburster puts his little bony xenomorph hands up as well. And this was the scene that I most hated when I first saw this film but that I think works quite well, as long as you're not too mad about the idea of explaining the xenomorph. Yeah, and I think this is where, as with a lot of this film, as a standalone kind of, like, progression of scenes, right, this this interaction between um, Oram, uh, Billy Crudup's character, Mm -hmm. and David, I think it works on its own quite well. I like the way that um, Crudup's character interacts with David. Um, I, I don't really have to, you know, I see a lot of criticism of the fact that he looks into the egg, but I mean, you know. Like, so did Kane. I, like, I don't this think happens that, in the original Alien. Yeah, you, you know, like, I, I, I don't think that's a particularly meaningful criticism, really, if I'm being perfectly honest. It, it's not on the same... Like, I, I do understand some of the criticisms that exist of this film of, again, it's the supposedly smart people doing stupid things thing i'm not really sure that this actually fits into that right because it's kind of like it's a split second lapse in judgment basically you know like you know maybe don't peer into the thing when there's some but you know by the time you've done it it's too late right so i i quite like i quite like the scene on its own in terms of like the emergence of the chestburster again i've seen some criticism of this that this thing basically is like a little mini xenomorph right but and that, you know, oh, it doesn't look like the chestburster. In... So one, there is an argument to be had about whether this is exactly the same creature anyway, right? I'm not I'm not overly yeah, concerned with whether it is or not. not, right? But even if it is, you know, we're talking about a film that's being made, like, you know, 40-odd years after the, you know, after the, the, the first film. It's probably reasonable to assume that, you know, if they could have portrayed it this way in 1979, maybe he would have. That was my interpretation. Like I, my interpretation yeah. was that Ridley Scott is saying with this scene that he always wanted it to be a tiny version of the Xenomorph, but they didn't have the technology to achieve that back then. 
you know, combined with it, it's a different scenario as well. I mean, like, let's face it, the chestburster doesn't really get a lot of screen time in 1979, right? For understandable no, reasons, it, it because comes one, out it's small. And away across the floor. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so logically, I don't really have any any issue with any of this, and I think the scene in and of itself is actually quite good. I think this is where I start to have the issues with the film. In the, I I don't have a problem with explaining the origin of the xenomorph, right? I if we want to explain the origin of it on film, I'm okay with that as long as it's a compelling story or there's a compelling idea behind it, right? I don't need it I don't need it to be unknowable, right? In the way that it was in 1979 if we have a good idea to attach to it. My thing is, right? And this will kind of progress as the film goes on. We'll probably have a little bit more discussion about this uh towards the end. For me, the origin as presented here is too neat. It's too wrap around, right? The idea that this creature, which terrorizes the crew of a Wayland Yutani ship a hundred or so years after the events of this film, was actually born from a android experimenting with the biology on a nearby alien planet, and that android's flaws come from the arrogance of his creator, who was Peter Wayland, one of the original. Fan- it's too neat. It's too wraparound. Yeah. And I think even as a kind of like comment on the arrogance and the flaws of humanity, which I think is partially what it's try- trying to get. Again, we'll talk about this later. Partially, maybe what it's going for. It's still too neat. And it doesn't, it doesn't really work as that sort of thesis about kind of you know the arrogance of man trying to create and control, and it coming back to bite them in the arse again. It's too neat. Um, that's my problem with it. It's not the fact that we have an explanation; it's the way that that explanation wraps around and dialogues with the other films. I think it dialogues with the other films in a way which is is. I don't want to say improbable, but it's not. It 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 narrows the universe in a way that kind of shuts down the commentary that it's trying to achieve. Yeah, I agree with everything you've said. Um, but I I do think I I am the person you mentioned at the start who thinks the alien should be fundamentally unknowable. I mean, this franchise is called Alien. It is supposed to be alien. It is supposed to be unknown, unknowable mysterious Lovecraftian cosmic horror we're not supposed to know where this savage creature came from and it shouldn't matter particularly for the first film it should be entirely unknown and I think that explaining it takes away a lot of that power and it is specifically explaining it in the way that you've mentioned this neat wraparound way where Mm. the alien fundamentally emerges from humanity from humanity's creation this android through Wayland's creation through Wayland's company through this kind of um rapacious capitalism that that Wayland is a, a signifier for that makes it that that reduces the universe you know that makes the galaxy so much smaller and I'd, I'd compare it to when you find out in Star Wars episode one that C-3PO was made by Anakin Skywalker like this it's a it's a small detail that shrinks the universe down to this one family, the Skywalker family, which has been a recurrent yeah. problem of the Star Wars films, but that's another podcast. So yeah, it, it shrinks everything down in a really unsatisfying way. 
I also have... I, I had problems... I have problems with the gender politics of of how this is done. Um, in particular, the the original film was kind of ambiguous about whether the alien was male or female and where it came from. And Aliens kind of expands on this with the kind of monstrous feminine where it's an allegory for female power against masculine power. And to find out that the alien is created in this film from a male figure from an android complicated by the coding of as gay which i mentioned in the last film but still a, a kind of father figure mm. for me strips the xenomorph of a lot of that ambiguously sexual power and, and kind of asserts male authority over this creature and its creation in a way that i find quite unsatisfying yeah and i think this is where I think basically the film could have gone down two paths and it tries to have its cake and eat it, right? It tries to do both. Because I actually think a lot of that threat, if you think about kind of the way he behaves towards uh, Walter, in particular the way in which shortly after this, I don't want to jump the the gun on the the recap, but the way David then interacts with um, Daniels, Catherine Watson's character, a lot of that threat is transferred to David himself, right? And I find that interesting because basically what the fi- what the film actually wants to do is I think it wants to present da- like it's, it basically wants it almost kind of wants to present David as the monster right and David as this reflection Absolutely. of the worst impulses of humanity right and basically he has inherited the flaws of his creator in Wayland he has inherited. Uh, the arrogance and the delusions of grandeur and and and, and everything there right it's kind of probably trying to show kind of like you know the products of the society we create are inherently flawed in the way we are yeah, right i have more on that in a and couple i think of that, scenes. yeah and i think that that's that's an interesting thing to put across right in particular and we'll talk more about david later on because i have a lot of thoughts about him in this film and basically is the strongest element of this film as far as i'm concerned but in trying to marry and cover the origin of the alien at the same time it does undermine some of the messaging with that because a lot of, a, a common strand through the first set of films is the arrogance of humanity to think that they can control this organism right they want to harness it for their own yeah. ends right and the idea is that they can't and they shouldn't be able to and it's arrogance right but this completely undermines that because it's a product of humanity that creates it and can in fact control it, right? Because there's explicit scenes the of this, right? Where he salutes. calms the neomorph, yeah. and the xenomorph acknowledges it. You know, so it 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 confuses those themes, I think, or it confuses the way that this film interacts with those themes. Because also, you know, those films still exist. You can take them on their own terms, right? The, the heterarchical kind of structure that we spoke about in the last episode, but it do, it means that it doesn't. This film does not interact with the themes of those films particularly well in my view and i think it does other things much better this is one where it's it's a very confused film and i think it's more confused than prometheus prometheus was unsatisfying in some ways but i think it was reasonably certain about what it wanted to talk about i don't think this film is when it comes to the aspects of the alien life to be honest i disagree with that i I think it's a lot clearer about what it wants to say than Prometheus, but I fundamentally do not like what it has to say. 
it, it's kind of it's an it's an extension of Ash from Alien, where Ash the android was obsessed with this perfect organism that transcended humanity, and that was and that and that phrase is used as a direct exactly, callback yeah, yeah, as well, yeah. basically. So David is obsessed with the perfect organism and goes so far in his loneliness and his madness as to create the perfect organism, the xenomorph. But it's an extension that doesn't work for me. Like it, it takes it too far in the way that we've just been talking about and, and you've just been talking about. Yeah, um, there's an article uh, by Antonio Sana that I found uh, essentially reviewing the film for the Irish Journal of Gothic and Horror Studies that talks about Covenant being about male gestation and birth. Uh, which is the kind of inversion that, you know, would terrify male spectators because men are not used to, uh, males are not used to giving birth and having things ripped out of them. I I simply don't think it's as effective as Alien was at more subtly implying that. Um, And I think by having this male creator, it, it kind of falls apart. So Walter finds, Walter stumbles upon Shaw's body, uh, which was clearly experimented on by David. David mournfully plays the Prometheus theme on his flute, and Walter confronts him about releasing the pathogen. And here's where we get into uh, some of the thematic stuff around creation and humanity's creation, continuing the sins of the Father, you know, kind of thing that you just mentioned. Uh, David says he wasn't created to serve. He says that he's standing up for synthetic life and for the act of creating new life. And he views um, colonization, the human colonization, as the act of a dying species, desperate to spread itself out into the stars. Walter points out that David is broken, and he does this by pointing out that he was wrong about who wrote Ozymandias. Byron did not write Ozymandias. Shelley wrote Ozymandias. David just gets kind of mad at this and kills Walter with the flute. But what we see Walter's skin healing itself. So I like this scene a lot, and I think this scene brings out a lot of the film's themes around colonization and genocide and creation it explicitly positions colonization and spreading out in this way taking over territories that aren't yours as an act of destruction that is viewed by humanity as an act of creation and i think there's a lot of kind of um in the scene that we just talked about a few scenes ago where david kills commits genocide against the engineers he has this kind of blonde look you know he has this Aryan Mm -hmm. look about him he's also into uh Wagner so I mentioned he plays Wagner at the start of the film he plays Wagner at the very end of the film as well which we'll Mm -hmm. get to I'm not saying Wagner was a fascist but Wagner was appropriated by fascists yeah he was was quite liked quite liked by fascists fascists. and he was uh, an anti-semite and talked a lot about the perils of miscegenation and these kind of racial things. He, he wasn't a very nice man, uh, but he was very much appropriated by fascists. So we have this intersection of David as representation of Aryan fascism, of purity, trying to create this pure, perfect organism while, going, while decrying colonization, but also going about colonization. He is also destroying in order to create and he is exactly as you've alluded to perpetuating the capitalist and colonialist sins of of wayland of trying to spread out into the stars and create something by destroying what's already there this was very thematically resonant for me uh, and 
a damn sight more interesting than a lot of the previous films uh, that we've that we've seen. I couldn't actually find any academic papers that talk about this, which surprised me because I think it's such an interesting reading of these films. But I did find an awful lot of articles for this film from non-English speaking countries, a lot more than I found for the previous films. So this seems to have had a large cultural impact outside the UK and the USA. So there's lots from Japan, Korea, India and Mexico. And not for Japan, obviously, but for the other countries. I wonder if that speaks to the kind of anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism of the film and how it appeals to people in those countries more than uh, the UK and the USA. Well, particularly in the case of a few of the countries you mentioned, I think I, I think another another layer that's probably worth that adding to this is that um, like one of the ways that Dave and Walter contrasted is also Walter's an American accent. Now, of course, you know America is no no uh, stranger to the idea of uh, colonialism in a slightly different form yeah. to to Britain, but like there there is an element of the fact that um, the fact that David speaks with this sort of like cut glass. English accent yeah, yeah, yeah. really does kind of like lead into this a little bit as well. So I I, I do wonder if it's something that maybe some English speaking um, analysis is maybe oblivious to. Um, yeah. But I think, but, but I, I I like you. I I am surprised, right? Because it's just it's so it's so obviously there, right? You have an, you've got an act of genocide. You have this kind of desire for the perfect superior. Dare I say? being and you know i mean come on the choice of the, the the choice of wagner is no accident i mean it's really not no. you know um so like it's very much there there in the film sure it's buried under the layers of body horror that, that you know we've, we've spoken about and, and, and all these other things going on that you would expect in something that has you know alien as the the primary title here but the, this these are the ideas that i think the the film is the most interested in right and then it's most and when i said so like i wasn't sure about what i wanted to say i do think it's sure about what he wants to say here mm -hmm. but i don't think it's sure about what he wants to say around it i think the ideas that it's delivering through the david character right uh, and his behavior and his motivations right i think are good and i think they're clearer than prometheus i think prometheus had a had a tighter focus uh, in terms of its ideas, yeah. um, you know, and they were maybe far more metaphysical, and it just didn't execute them very well. Here, I think it executes this particular strand of ideas very well, but then the other stuff around it, in terms of how it interacts with the other alien films, it, it, that's a lot more muddled. This, to me, what we've just spoken about, this is where this film is at its strongest and at its most interesting. And I also think it sits alongside the themes of the original strand of films quite well right i think it complements it quite well and it's a different idea that i don't think has really been put forward in the other films right you know we've spoken a lot about what's going on those and it doesn't it doesn't address these in the same way right and i think this is the most interesting aspect of this film and it's kind of a shame that it was to me anyway that it's not pitched and retooled in a way that really kind of like properly foregrounds them and makes them the the real anchor of the film but. Agreed. There's there's a lot in previous films about um, obviously capitalism and anti-capitalism and capitalism as the real uh, monster behind it all, the driving force that that brings all this up and the kind of alien as a metaphor for 
these kinds of forces that, that destroy the working class. But I think this this is the first film to bring in those kind of rich links to colonialism and imperialism and capitalism. I, I, I think I, there is there's an excellent spin-off film in here, right? Yeah. I think that, 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 that there's an excellent film that maybe shares some elements of a universe with the alien film but i but i really do think you could take like because basically i think a lot of these ideas right and it probably still requires prometheus to exist right but we've kind of discussed the 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 issues with prometheus in that episode so if it exists as a sequel to prometheus and it was kind of a spin-off and it didn't feel the need to kind of sit within the same timeline chronologically and kind of like you know end to end with the alien films i think there's a much better film in here that shares elements of that universe but tries to address different things right because i think kind of basically what this film when it's doing things well what it's doing is it's harboring um sorry it's um harnessing kind of the unknowable elements of the universe and mankind's attempts to control and have dominion over them and the way that that ends up kind of like undermining and destroying things right whereas previously it's looking at and and it looks at that from kind of the idea of um creation and destruction and trying to become a god yourself and control the environment around you right whereas in the mainline films it's a much more kind of it, it takes much more kind of like aim at corporate you know the hubris of corporations and you know the military a little bit in in resurrection and kind of institutions let's say yes right whereas i think this has a much more spiritual bent in that kind of like it's seen as a flaw of humanity as opposed to a flaw of capitalism but the thing that's interesting is if you have them with spinels then they can interact right because they do interact um, but the focus is different. Where it has a problem is because it because it's trying to be a prequel to Alien, right? I I, I realize it sounds a little bit ridiculous, but basically that's where its pro- its problem come it comes in because the way that it tries to marry them together ends up kind of undermining some of the things that have been said about those uh, aspects in, in other films. But I think there is there is there is a version out there in a parallel universe. I think where it's a spin-off and it kind of has these things running in parallel mm-hmm. and it says similar things but it doesn't undermine each other in quite the same way yeah yeah one of one of the uh, articles that i did find like i say i found a lot of these non-english speaking articles which were not in Eng- languages that i can read so i couldn't read them but they sounded like they had interesting titles so i've put a few of them in the, the tarot references for this episode but one of the ones i could read uh, which is by Imad Eldin Aisha is about Orientalism and uh, science fiction and Orientalism and in a brief paragraph argues that Covenant extends Ridley Scott's degendering and deorientalizing aims of the original Alien. Now I won't go that far, I don't think it's particularly successful at doing that, but I think it is pushing in that direction certainly, uh, in a way that's not entirely successful, but I applaud it for trying it. Like, I think trying that kind of thing is a lot more than we've had from the last few films we've seen. Daniels, Catherine Waterston's character, discovers what David has been doing. And this gets a bit repetitious, because she's the third character so far to discover what David has been doing. Uh, and stumble on his, his mad laboratory. 
the xenomorph and a facehugger kill two crew members. Meanwhile, uh, Daniels and David fight, but Walter saves her, and he and David fight. David says that Walter can either serve in heaven or reign in hell, and that's the Paradise Lost stuff, the Milton stuff that mm-hmm. Ridley Scott alluded to with his first title. Incidentally, there's also allusions to uh, The Tempest, where David is kind of this monstrous Caliban character that they find on this mysterious island, this mysterious planet. And again, I found an interesting article comparing this to The Tempest, but it was in Japanese, so I couldn't read it. Uh, so Tennessee manages to get the lander down, uh, one of the terramorphing landers down to the planet, but the xenomorph manages to get onto the lander, and there's a action scene where the xenomorph is attacking the lander, and Daniels is trying to shoot it while dangling from the lander. She uses a big crane to capture and crush it, which seemed to me to be in dialogue with aliens, and the conclusion of that, where Ripley's in the, the crane suit. Mm-hmm. You know, the the kind of best of uh, Alien franchise that I, I thought this was attempting to do. I also thought that while we're on the subject of this dialogue with previous films, I think, in some sense, this is trying to resolve the identity crisis that you have identified throughout this podcast. I think this is trying to bring together these disparate elements from the other Alien films and... I get the sense from you that it's not entirely successful in doing this. No, I, 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 I don't think it is. One thing I would say, and this is this is not the deepest, um, sort of like critical, the, the deepest aspect of the critical analysis of the film have kind of gone through here. But I, to me, actually, I really do think kind of like as we start to move towards the conclusion of the film with this kind of like action piece of it, I actually think this is probably too reminiscent of other films, right? I, it, it's yeah. It, it it feels too much like a response to Prometheus, and it's like, okay, well, you didn't want Prometheus, here's Alien, here's Alien. Well, yeah, I, um, I quoted Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian earlier saying that it's a compilation, and I think he, yeah. he ultimately says it's reliant too much on those previous films. So if you haven't seen them, you don't really know what's going on. And, and I agree with that point as well. I, I really hate to agree with Peter Bradshaw, but here we are. So the remaining crew return to Covenant, uh, and Walter is also with them. Mother reports an unidentified life form on the ship because although it feels like the film has ended, it's actually not. The med bay is covered in blood and a crew member has been chest bursted. Two crew members are having a sexy shower when the xenomorph comes upon them and kills them and Daniel and Tennessee track the new xenomorph. At this point, we get the franchise's first ever point of view shot from a xenomorph. So it's kind of dark but with these weird squiggles like heat haze in front of its vision uh, I don't think it works at all I, I like the idea that the alien does not have eyes and cannot does not have vision in the same sense that we do I I, I, I thought this was terrible yeah, the same not, not I, 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 I also I also don't particularly see the need for it I mean in terms of kind of it just you know logistically establishing how the xenomorph is moving through the ship they have cctv footage which they actually cut to during this kind of sequence like you know or rather the sequence that follows this it it, it really doesn't need this um the, the funny thing is actually we keep talking about this being dialogue with the other 
alien films. This is the one part of the film that felt like it was in dialogue with bloody Alien versus Predator Requiem, to be honest with you. It felt like the unnecessary kind of like addition of the Xenomorph vision, this kind of like, you know, the, mm-hmm. almost the punishing of the people who are having sex. Like, if anything, it, it, it's actually the one part of this film that really feels quite a lot like Alien versus, Aliens, sorry, versus Predator Requiem, which I've, I find quite amusing. Yeah. I didn't pick up on any of that, but I can see it now that you mention it. So it's really a, it's it's also a recapitulation of what happens in Alien when they're pursu- the alien is pursuing them through the ship and they're shutting off doors to kind of mm-hmm. block it into certain paths. Daniels and Tennessee lure it to the terraforming base so they can open it into the airlock and flush it out into space. And you get a lot of shots of the xenomorph in this, and it's generally a lot more skeletal than in previous films because they're using CG here. And that allows them to be mm-hmm. thinner. And it's not a man in a suit. You know, it's not the the man in the suit who so effectively portrayed the alien in the first film. Uh, or the recurrent man in a suit who portrayed them in uh, later films. Is it as effective? I don't think so. It looks a lot weaker, you know? Because it's so skeletal and so thin, it looks like it needs to have a good meal. You could snap it like a, <laughs> like a twig. I don't know. It worked okay. It worked okay for me, to be yeah. honest. Like I, I don't, I don't like the look of um, it. I, I like the look of the original Alien, and this didn't really work for me. I think the the problem is it's. I think by this stage in the films, you you know so well what they look like that it's um, it's really kind of easy to spot differences. Because the one thing I would say is that I I I quite like it in the sense that it does it does appear less human, right? You know, because I think that, you know, there is quite a a humanoid form to the early ones for obvious reason. And here it's more kind of like they're more of a bipedal creature. So I don't, I, I don't dislike it. Um, I, what I would say is I don't think it, it certainly doesn't improve over anything, I think is what I would say. Yeah, fair um, enough. It didn't, it, yeah, it, it wasn't a problem for me, but I, you know, I don't think it's an improvement in any way, so. They managed to flush the alien out into space, though. On, on the front of a giant terraforming machine and it, it falls back down to the planet. Tennessee goes down to cryosleep and Walter, who is definitely Walter, puts Daniels into cryosleep. <laughs> uh, just before she goes to sleep, she asks him to help build her cabin. But it's clear on his face that he doesn't know what she means. Oh no, it's David. But it's too late and the cryosleep takes effect and she is left screaming that uh, David has snuck onto the ship as Walter. I think this is a very obvious twist. I I pinpointed it the first time I saw the film, but I think it worked a lot better for me uh, this time round, particularly the kind of subtle creepiness that Michael Fassbender brings in that last scene when he is suddenly unearthed as David. You know, he says, uh, oh, don't worry, I'll tuck the children in. And then he goes into the uh, bay where they're keeping all the colonists and he implants a couple of uh, tiny facehugger embryos that he's been carrying around uh, among the colonists, thus implying that the entire colony will be destroyed and and turned into his perfect organism of xenomorphs. He puts on some Wagner, the entry of the gods into Valhalla, while he does this. And it's a very nihilistic ending. It's a very dark ending. Uh, that I didn't really remember at all, but that I actually really liked 
I I I I like the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I the interesting the, the the interesting thing about that is I I have been unable to decide in my head whether whether the the, the Walter David switcheroo right. I've been unable to determine in my head whether that is meant to be a twist for everyone or just the characters in the film, right? Because it it seems so painfully obvious to me. It seems that, obvious. Like, as... narr- narratively, I, I I just I wonder why it's presented that way. If it if it's meant to be a twist, you know? Yeah, uh, it seems it's obvious from the minute that David cuts his hair, so he looks exactly like Walter. When you've got these two identical robots played by the same actor it seems obvious that there's going yeah. to be a twist later where one is playing the other I, yeah I, or some you know or so, something is going to hinge on one being confused for the other yeah right? i think it is meant to be a twist and i think when you see it first time it's a twist that's so obvious it's insulting that they think you're not you haven't figured that out second time around i think it plays a lot better mm. because you can focus a little more on fastbenders performance where he is playing David but with enough Walter in him to kind of throw audience members off the scent. Uh, We end with the final report from Walter talking about how the ship is going to continue to the colony and we fade to credits. So as I've... Yeah, it's pretty bleak. Yeah, it's it's a bleak ending. Um, This entire colony is is doomed Uh, and David, the kind of destructive colonising creator... The mad robot, uh, driven mad by years of not being able to create, is going to create by destroying 2,000 or whatever people, uh, an entire space colony. And overall, as I've said, I, I, I like this film. I think it works really well. I think it builds tension effectively. It builds character effectively. The script is a lot better than Prometheus. I don't like what I've said, the explanation of the Xenomorph. I'm still angry about that, but not as angry as I was because on a whole, the film worked for me, as in it was entertaining and I was involved in these characters and their lives, particularly uh, David and Catherine Waterston's character. So yeah, I'm a lot happier with it now than I was when I first saw it. I, I would consider this the best Alien film since Aliens. I'm trying to say, I, I maybe agree with you there. It's. I think as I've kind of alluded to a few times as we've gone through this, I do find it this a confusing film to process how I how I feel about it in a sort of binary way, right? And not not to go completely off topic about the rotten tomatoesification of film criticism, mm-hmm. but it's a good example, right, of how considering films in this good bad binary or this kind of multi-layer binary of is it better or worse than these other films right you you know like if like drop your alien films letterbox ranking right i i would find it incredibly difficult to determine with this film because there are a lot of things i think it does really well and i enjoy a lot more i certainly find it a much as a self-contained film right in terms of observing the characters and um, their interactions and kind of the plot of the film in a standalone sense, I find this a l- much less frustrating film than Prometheus. Yes, right? I, that, I think that, that's what, that's what say. I'm saying. As a standalone film, qua film, as a film unto itself, I think this works in a way that I didn't think Prometheus worked. Uh, I think the script yeah. just completely hampers Prometheus. 
but I think this is entertaining in and of itself. Yeah, and I think and I think it does interesting things with um, the David character in particular, right? But where it's where it really doesn't work, really, is as part of the larger franchise that we have been speaking about this entire time. And I, I, I find that an interesting thing because it, it it's kind of from a marketing standpoint, it's the selling point of this film, right? You know, like the trailer, as I recall it, it ends with a shot of a xenomorph snarling on a dropship, right? That's that's the pitch of this film. They're making no bones about this fun- being an alien film in the marketing. I mean it has alien oh, in, yeah, the, absolutely. in the title. Yeah. They they showed the xenomorph like straight up in the trailers, like it wasn't hidden at all. Oh yeah, and they lean they lean hard into that both with everything, right? I mean, I was in um, I was in a secondhand DVD shop a few weeks ago. I think I posted this on socials where I saw this I saw this kind of like cover sleeve for a 4K disc which said Alien. I was like, holy crap! Is okay? I don't have that. Let's get that. Let's let's see how much this is secondhand. And I got up close to it, and there was this tiny, tiny, tiny little covenant below it right <laughs> you know so like even down to kind of like you know the 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 sleeve art for like the home video release yeah. it's leaning into the fact that it's an alien film but the thing that's really ironic about it is i that is the aspect of it that doesn't work because it as we've already discussed when we got to kind of like the emergence of the xenomorph from uh, billy crudup's character it it makes it too neat Right, and I, I think where I differ to you is, I'm okay with knowing a bit more about the origin of the xenomorph, but it it should really just kind of like go back. If you take Alien 1979 as the starting point, it should just kind of go. If you are going to get any sort of explanation, yeah. I feel like it should go backwards from that, but still keep it largely unknowable. Right, in in terms of kind of like its actual true origin in the sense of the way that the characters in Prometheus were looking for their origin, right? It, it, it should keep that unknown. I'm okay with knowing more about it, but not to the extent that its entire, you know, its entire um, yeah creation story is obvious, right? And I think this film, in trying to talk about that, it's used the xenomorph as part of that structure, and I think that undermines the other. I think that undermines the other films, and therefore, it undermines this film's re- relationship to them. Right when I think, it, as I say, some sort of spin-off parallel idea with some of the notions that this film has, I think it could have worked superbly. Um, and there's a lot this film does well. So that's what I find ironic about it. I do think it's a pretty good film. I enjoyed it. I think it's got a lot of interesting ideas. I think it's got a fantastic central performance of Michael Fassbender, and a lot of the ideas they communicate through that character are great. But completely ironically, it's its relationship to this larger franchise, which does not work for me at all. Yeah, I think linking in with the rest of the franchise are the weakest elements of it. Uh, Yeah, in terms of the origin of the xenomorph which i said you know doesn't work for me in this film and completely sort of undermines it i I think after prometheus after i saw prometheus i was sort of satisfied with that i was like okay so the xenomorph was another creation of these engineers like another biological experiment that the engineers did from there you can sort of chart how 
a derelict engineer ship ends up with a load of eggs in the cargo hold for Alien. And I was pretty satisfied yeah. with that. I think this actual explanation is a lot worse and works a lot less well, as we've said, around neatness and making the universe smaller and tying it all into humans undermines itself and undermines the core idea of Alien and the alienness of the alien. Yeah, you know, I mean, I even think back to kind of like, you know, the iconic iconic kind of things you associate with, you know, in space no one can hear you scream. Well, that's a lot of shite here. You can sing a bit of John Denver and somebody will hear you, <laughs> you know. Like, it's, it, you know, it's like it's aspects like that just make no sense to me. Whereas, like, if if the, the kind of the xenomorph, and I use xenomorph kind of loosely because obviously it, it, it's not really origin that we see in prometheus there and let's say that in this kind of fantasy fantasy universe of mine prometheus was maybe slightly better executed but that 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 would be okay right because then kind of like it becomes this parallel strand thing and the way that they would then dialogue would be kind of you know humanity is a creation of the engineers and you can see with david them making the same mistakes that the engineers make yes. with humanity and their experimentation with this pathogen, right? There's a nice, to me, there's a nice parallel there. But curiously, I don't really feel like the, the like the film kind of like gets across the parallels with uh, David and his creating and the arrogance with Wayland, right? So it, it, it's an idea that's there, but it never really entertains the notion that the there's a parallel between. Uh, humans and the engineer race, right? Which I think is, which I think it, it, it is there, but I wouldn't say it necessarily in, in, engages it with it that much beyond kind of like that one little clip from uh, David's flashback, right, where we kind of like see the actual payoff of him and Shaw arriving on the planet. Mm. So it, it is it is strange to me because it's it, it is the. <laughs> It's the history of this franchise that that undermines this film and that this film undermines. And I think that's a very strange position for this film to be in. And I think that's maybe why it has a slightly confused reaction where it's sometimes considered better and it's sometimes not. Because I think that's really just... That, that is the film. It does a lot of things better than Prometheus. But because it's trying to respond to Prometheus and also sit alongside the alien films and also kind of like develop some of its own ideas, it doesn't it doesn't have a satisfying place, right? It doesn't have a satisfying way that it sits into that larger story. Mm -hmm. um, and that's unfortunate, and I think that's what that, that's what ultimately kind of undermines it. Yeah, I mean, I said at the start that Scott has this idea for one more sequel to bridge the gap between this and Alien, and maybe that will make this whole endeavour work in retrospect. But as it is, as it stands in 2023... I, I think it's pretty clear that the, these films are not as good as the original Alien and, and do not work in that sense. And I think we've clearly, despite what I think of this film's attempts to resolve the identity crisis, we're still very much in the throes of that franchise identity crisis that we've been charting the entire podcast. Mm. Uh, and this film is yeah. another example of it. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, if like another film between... And don't be wrong. If it, if it ever appears, I'll be I'll be happy to be proven wrong if it if it does. But it's more when I look at the ideas this film's communicating and the way it links into the rest of the series and all the rest of it. it like narratively, from a plot perspective, I can see where this 
would go, right, potentially. But in terms of, like, ideas and the way it links in and the sort of thing that is communicating beyond just plot beats, I don't really see where this film goes from here. It's it, it's actually it's actually wrapped it up too neatly, right, as we said before, in terms of, like, the wraparound mm. nature of the, these creatures' existence and how they relate to humanity, and the fact that they relate to humanity at all, basically. It's made it too neat, and, you know, not to well, jump the gun on any future discussions that we might have, this alien film, Alien Romulus, that's meant to be coming, uh, like, next year or the year after or something, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that that seems to be a younger cast and it's a spin-off and it's kind of semi-unrelated i think kind of speaks to that idea there 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 is nowhere for this to go other than this you know this modern concept of the soft reboot right where it's related but it's it's not actually you know because this has tried to marry things together and it hasn't really managed it like it's the, the relationship and the weight of this series and this franchise is what causes this film to i don't want to say fail fails a bit strong but it is the source of its greatest weaknesses let's say yeah i don't think it fails but yeah it's definitely the weakest points i i agree like where 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 more do you take this other than seeing the derelict ship with the alien eggs in the hold crash on lv426 and who cares we can intuit that that happened we don't need to see it on film so, to wrap things up, we can do a quick last round of Xenobiology, where we talk about what we learned about the alien creature in this film, which is where it came from, the origins of it. So, the chemical that the engineers created that we saw in Prometheus mutated the indigenous life on this planet into neomorphs. David, the android, did some experiments on the neomorphs and ultimately produced this thing that has that comes from an egg that latches onto a human host and then grows a xenomorph in in the chest of the human host. I don't know where the queen comes into it, but I, I don't think either does Ridley Scott or the screenwriters. And they don't care. And we don't care. So, that is Alien Covenant. And that means we have come to the end, at last, after eight episodes of the Alien franchise. I wanted to propose that we do one more episode after this, offering wrap-up, some thoughts, and some looks at the future of the Alien franchise. That sound good to you? Mm-hmm. Yep. I was also going to propose that we give our rankings of these films, but then you went off on one about Letterboxd rankings. No, I can't. No, no, we could do it. I mean, honestly, like my... Um... My my whole thing is using using the delivery of lists as an opportunity to rail against the use of lists, so I'm, I'm perfectly happy to do okay. that. Okay, well, fine. look forward to our next episode where we have a 15-minute rant about uh, lists and rankings in, in cinema criticism. Absolutely. Uh, but until then, thank you very much for joining us for this tour of the Alien franchise. Please continue to follow us on uh, Twitter to hear anything that we might do in the future at at the Xenopod, and follow us on Blue Sky at, at the Xenopod.bsky.social. Um, if you go to takeoncinema.net, you'll find the full back catalogue of the episodes of this uh, podcast embedded there, or you can follow the links through and get to your preferred source, whatever that may be. Um, and just kind of keep an eye on that section of the website. I think this has been a good 
a good project, it's a good example, the sort of thing that we want to do with maybe some of the more popular films that take one, because we try to focus a little bit on kind of like, you know, more festival stuff and smaller things, but I think where there's interesting things to say about big films, we, we like to do that, and that's a good example of this, and I'm kind of hoping to do more projects like this in the future, so I would say just keep an eye out for that sort of thing, and uh, keep an eye on the socials for the next thing that we plan along these sort of lines, or if we do future episodes of this, because I think... Uh, Given given there is potentially another alien film coming out in the next uh, couple of years or so, and there are other alien things kicking around that we've not looked at, there is the potential for that, right? So we'll do we'll do a wrap up episode where we kind of like try to bring our thoughts together on the entire series. But I would, in the modern world of Hollywood, and as strikes start to uh, be resolved, um, I would be very surprised if that's the end of this as a franchise and a series, so there'll be there'll be other things to look at. Super. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll end by saying, hopefully, this transmission will reach the network and be relayed in 1.36 years. This is Walter signing off. Security code 31564F. Game over, man! Game-